Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And today joining us, we've got Jennifer Ballou on the line. Jennifer, how are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. How are you? Oh, we are great. And I know we're going to be even better in about 45 minutes after we hear your story and learn <laughs> learn from and with you. I am grateful that you will join us. To all of our listeners, we know this time of year is a powerful and a poignant one for America as we hit Memorial Day and picnics, barbecues, and parades. Those are wonderful, awesome parts of summer traditions here in our yeah. communities. We pause as Americans to honor and remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice in giving their lives for our freedom and our country and all around the world. And we are always grateful this time of year to partner with The Unquiet Professional, which is a beautiful organization that this time of year holds a virtual memorial mile. They make sure these the memories of our fallen are not forgotten. Each year they select a few families to really honor and engage with. And this year we are proud to introduce Jennifer Ballou, not only introduce her, but also her family. And she's going to share with us today the story of her fallen soldier, Staff Sergeant Eduardo Laredo, who was killed in Afghanistan in the summer of 2010. So Jennifer, I just always want to know a little bit about what drove you went to the military. I understand you served and your husband served, so we'd love to hear some backstory. Did you find the Army first, or did you find each other first, and how did you all come together? Oh, thank you. That's a really great question. So I'm originally from a town kind of close to Cleveland, Ohio. I was born and raised there. I'm the oldest of six children, and nobody in my family in the recent you know, years has served in the military. So when I came home one day, I was still in high school and said that I was interested in joining the military. That was just a little bit not common. Like my family wasn't expecting that. I enlisted in the army. Actually, when I was a junior in high school, I left for basic training three weeks after I graduated high school. And Honestly, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but from the moment I arrived at basic training, I loved everything about it. I loved the structure, the discipline, the the camaraderie. I mean, the list goes on and on, um, but I loved it. I had served in the Army for a good probably 12 maybe nine to 10 years, I don't remember exactly, before I met 
my husband, Staff Sergeant Eduardo Laredo, who you mentioned, we were both stationed in Vicenza, Italy. Oh, how beautiful. Which is a beautiful (laughs) place to fall in love, right? Oh, it's like out of a movie. Absolutely. Okay, so had he been serving for quite a while as well? I mean, you had a whole decade in the Army before you met him, so it's not like you were brand new to those boots. Correct. So when I met Eddie... I already had a child and was divorced at a pretty young age. And at that point in my life, I had no interest in meeting anybody. Um, And I had a girlfriend who kept saying, I really need you to meet this guy, Eddie. You're going to, I'm just telling you, you need to meet him. And I'm like, Debbie, I don't do, you know, hookups or, you know, and blind dates or anything like that. Um, Eddie had been serving for uh, he came in later in life, but he had been serving for a while as well. But she was right. As soon as we met, there was just this energy that it's really hard to describe. But there was this energy about Eddie that I was just immediately drawn to. Um, like anybody who knew him would probably say the same. He was always smiling. His smile lit up a room. He had this zest for a life that is second to none. And it's just kind of like one of those people that you meet and you're like, I want a little bit of whatever it is. I need that in my life. Yes. So how long did you date? How did that work with your child? Was there kind of a natural fit as you formed a new family? So both serving in the military was a little bit challenging. Because, like, he would deploy, and then I would go away for something. And so there, it was kind of like a juggling act the entire time. But oh, my goodness, I bet. But we figured it out. Yeah, we figured it out fairly quickly. My daughter, Alexis, she was really young at the time, wasn't a huge fan of the situation at first. But it was simply because she was used to having me all to herself. Sure. Now she's um, got to share mama. Per- Yes. Pretty quickly she came around, though, and loved Eddie just like everybody else did. And a few months after we started dating, he deployed to Afghanistan, and we weren't really sure what was going to happen. But back then, I mean, that was in, like, 2005. It was a while ago, but not that long ago. We wrote letters the entire time that he was gone back and forth. And I still have them all, which is really, really What a treasure. Yeah. Uh, We we got to know each other on this level that I just feel like is really uncommon at this point. And I'm so grateful for it. So he was deployed before you were married. So you're just developing this beautiful relationship through old-fashioned letters. Correct. Oh, yeah, this is totally a movie. That... You meet in Italy. Your pen pals. <laughs> oh, yeah, no kidding. This is this in an is era too... of internet and yeah. But I'm yeah. I'm with you, Jennifer, because my husband and I um, he joined the army in 2003, and through our first separations, we have letters. Even though it doesn't feel yeah. like it was that long ago, you didn't have Skype and FaceTime. But and you had email. You had email, but. I don't know, you wrote a letter, and yeah. now you have the letter. The letter is priceless. I know. And although email was a thing then, Michelle, he was in places where he didn't have access to a computer. And oh, that so makes a lot his, of sense. Yeah. yeah, so his main form of communication, like we would email periodically when he could or sure. you know, when he was somewhere where they're like, 
catching up on things or whatever. But yeah, that was just how we communicated. So when he got back, we just knew this is it. And we got married. And shortly thereafter, I got pregnant and we moved back to the United States. Okay. And so now you have two children. While I was pregnant with our son, he was deployed again. Oh, my goodness. And that time, he was gone for 15 months in total. That that was the period of time where, yeah. And so I don't know about you, but you can probably imagine it's pretty hard to plan the birth of a child around the two-week period of time that the soldier gets to come back home. But we tried it. And it's like, okay, well, I'm due on this day. And if you could be home around this period of time and everything seemed to be falling into place, he was on the plane to come home for two weeks of leave. I woke up in the middle of the night and my water broke. Oh, no. (laughs) And so so close, but so far away execute plan B. My girlfriend came to pick me up and I'm telling the doctors, Eddie is, he will be here in hours. Like, is there any way we can slow this thing down? And so back to the movie, he got there just in the nick Oh, of time he did? This is a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a movie. I mean, oh, dirty uniform and all. Sure. He ran in and Beautiful he made love it. Story. And it was, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. So you have your darling little girl. Now you have a little boy. He's obviously only home for the birth and and goes back to the deployment after that. Yep. He went back two weeks later. And when he redeployed that time, our son Eddie was nine months old. And our whole marriage, our whole relationship, we were apart much more than we were together. And you were still Um, in the army, right? You stayed in? And I'm still in the army. Yes, I'm still in the army. I got promoted shortly after we had our son to E8, which I was a first sergeant. So I was like in a pretty, I don't know, how do I want to say it? Like a Well, for the civilians, yeah, civilians listening, it's the eighth, it's the eighth step on that enlisted side. And you're Definitely kind of senior leadership there. So, Yeah. So I have a brand new baby and a daughter who she was 10. My husband's deployed and I'm taking on this big role. And we learn, I learned that my unit is going to be deploying. Oh, my goodness. In about a year. Yeah. And so it's kind of crazy, but Eddie was so excited to think that he was going to be the one home with the family this time because up until this point, I was the one that was always home and he was gone. Well, he ended up deploying again. Oh my gosh. And the way that it was supposed to work out was he left. He was going to be gone for a year and I was going to get there to Afghanistan, not to the same place, but there would be like a two month overlap where we were both there and then he would go back home and I would finish my year. And so we felt like, okay, our kids, like we have family that was super supportive and we kind of had everything as, as well taken care of as we could. And 
Eddie was an infantryman, and so I always knew what he did, and there was a lot of danger involved. And that particular deployment hit him a lot different than others because a lot of the men in his organization were losing their lives. And I didn't get to talk to him too often on the phone, but when I did, like that happy, like zest for life, Eddie, like there was a shift and I could just hear it, Mm -hmm. even though he wasn't saying it. But I still never imagined that the worst would happen to our family. But unfortunately, on June 24th, 2010, I was notified that Eddie had been, um, he got out of his vehicle. They were on one of his last patrols for that deployment. He stepped on an IED and he lost his left leg, but he was still alive and they were evacuating him to the nearest hospital to take care of him. Oh my goodness. And so... I mean, as you can probably imagine, just my every, it just was a really complete shift in thinking. And I was flown to where he was because it was pretty far away. And I just remember bits and pieces of that plane ride. And I just remember thinking about what our lives were going to be like now that Eddie didn't have a leg. So Jennifer, I just remember... Were you yeah. both were you both in Afghanistan at this time then? Yes. Oh my so goodness. I was in Afghanistan. Okay, I just was I clarifying the timeline of everything. Yeah, thank you for that. So, so I he's almost there, done with his um, time and you're starting up yours. Correct. Okay. Yeah, sorry I didn't No, make no, no, that no, clear. sorry. I just and I'm just trying to imagine this no. this movie that started so beautifully is not continuing yes. so beautiful. Yes. So now you're concerned. Um, how will life look where he is going to have a, a severe disability without a leg? I mean, that's a big deal. Right. But I knew that it would be fine. Like, I just knew Eddie would be just fine. He would be the guy running the Army 10-miler with a prosthetic <laughs> leg, and I would be by his side, and our kids would oh. be there cheering us on, and everything would be fine eventually. And yeah. unfortunately... When I arrived to the hospital where he was in Kandahar, um, he had passed away minutes before I arrived, which also was minutes before his 35th birthday. So he gave his life on June 24, 2010, just minutes before his 35th birthday. And you did not make it to his side. No. Oh, Jennifer, this is so heartbreaking. We're going to take a break for a minute and come back and have you walk us through now what? You're deployed. Your children are at home. Your injured husband is now your deceased husband. What in the world does life look like next? We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
All right, Jennifer, what happens next when you finally make it to your husband's side, but he's already passed? You're deployed. He's now deceased, and your children are at home. You're in the Army in a position of leadership, I imagine, doing very important things on this deployment of yours. What in the world happens when you're in a combat zone and your spouse dies in a different but close-by combat zone? So uh, this doesn't typically happen, and I think that a lot of people were asking the same thing, like, what do we do? What ended up happening is I escorted Eddie's body back to the United States. So typically, if the soldier's killed in action, there will be somebody assigned to escort their flag-draped casket back. And this was a very unique circumstance because his wife was there. And so I escorted him back. That was by far one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. But I'm so grateful at the same time that I was there and able to be the one to do it, um, mm. if that makes any sense at all. So we made the long trip back to the United States, and I brought his body back to Dover, Delaware, which is where all fallen soldiers are brought initially. And then I went to where my children were in Ohio with my family Now, my daughter, she was 11, so she understood what was going on. But my son, Eddie, was only two, and he didn't. He was so happy that mommy was home and, unfortunately, was so used to daddy not being around. It just felt normal. Yeah, he he didn't understand. And that was a really tough time. I mean, there's like... There's definitely, I always say, like, in the days, weeks, and months, and even kind of years following, like, a lot of it, honestly, is a blur. It's it's been almost 12 years now, but I definitely remember little Eddie just, like, being so happy that I was home, Um, but not long after, started to kind of understand so much so that like I couldn't leave the room without him being hysterical and eventually telling me that he was afraid that I wasn't going to come back like daddy. Oh, um, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it was tough. I, I did make the decision to stay in the army. I, I think at that point I had, I don't remember 14 years in like, I was somewhat close to being able to retire, and so I chose to continue to serve. And I'm I'm glad I did, but I just I didn't go back to Afghanistan, um, which was a whole nother loss in a way because I had worked so hard. I was a dental technician. My unit was a dental organization, and we were the first dental unit to deploy to Afghanistan, and we set up dental clinics all over the country to provide support to the soldiers who were there, you know, who, I mean, need dental care, dental emergencies happen anywhere. So we had worked really hard. And so, yeah, it was really, it was really tough to not go back, but um, it just wouldn't have been the right thing for me to go back. I mean, I found myself in this unique position 
because more often than not, the spouse of a fallen service member is not in the military. And I was also a little bit senior. And so I had this unique perspective of like, I know that these are the things that are supposed to be happening for my family. And I was also meeting a lot of other families who were in very similar circumstances. And like, unfortunately, things just weren't necessarily always happening or being delivered to these families like it was supposed to be. And so I had the chance to make some really positive changes on how families were taken care of there locally at the installation I was working at and eventually even got to sit on this advisory board to the chief of staff of the Army with other surviving families to kind of like share how can the Army do better and was able to recommend a policy that was put in place specific to dual military families who one of them is lost or passes away, that the soldier has the option to stabilize or stay where they're stationed for, you know, a longer period of time. And the way that came about, like, shortly is, On one hand, the Army is telling me, take care of your family, you know, there's no rush, just do what you need to do. And then shortly thereafter, I'm told you're going to move, or PCS as the Army calls it, to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri to be a first sergeant again. And I'm like, but wait, you just told me (laughs) take care of my family. And it, it was this huge thing. I mean, it was a huge thing. And so there was a policy ultimately put in place if someone like me or in a similar situation is ever in that situation, they can say, you know, I'd like to stay here for a little bit longer to get my life in order. That is beautiful. And I appreciate you working on that working group. I'm actually now on that working group. And as a military survivor whose husband died later on the timeline than yours did, I just want to say thank you for some of the changes that have been made that then were already in place when my husband died. Because some of, and there's still kinks, there's still kinks to work out. And you and I know the army's not perfect. And I do appreciate that they're, they're cognizant that they need to make some changes and improvements. But the more I get involved on current issues, the more I've also become educated on previous matters that this working group has addressed with the chief. And I'm just grateful. So just from one from one Army survivor to another, thank you for taking your mm-hmm. own grief and experience and not stopping there, but going to work for, unfortunately, future survivors who are still yet to come. But thank you for the work that you, you did there yeah. in that time and, and the work you do. If you're okay, I think we'll take one more break and then come back because I really do want to talk about the great work you're doing now. As is always the case when you interview someone you don't know, we start with a Google search. And as I Google search you, I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman should be teaching us so much. And, (laughs) And I love how you've taken your personal loss and tragedy and experiences and not just found a way to be resilient yourself, but dedicated your life to helping others find similar resilience. So we'll be right back and hopefully you can teach us a little bit more.
All right, Jennifer, so we're back. You've got these two young children. You're working on Army policy at the highest level at the Pentagon. You're really going to bat for other military survivors. Like you said, you've got this unique position you're in to not only be a surviving widow, but a service member, a senior leader. You've you've taken this awful experience and your position in it and really put it to work to benefit other people. Can you talk a little bit more about that and not only your own resilience, but now the, the coaching work that you do and how your journey has helped you now help other people? Absolutely. And I just want to say before I do, thank you for the work that you're doing. How, what a small world that you serve on that same advisory board. That's isn't that that's isn't that amazing. funny? Well, and I think that's oh how we gosh. found each other was through Krista Anderson, yeah. who I imagine probably yeah. served with you, and she's just about to finish her term, and I'm fairly new, so she's our bridge gotcha. and that beautiful, okay. the Unquiet Professional yes. Organization. So, wow, yeah, so small world. Around the same time, probably like five months later after Eddie died, the army started. Um, well, they already were, but. The installation I was at was standing up a resilience program, and somehow I was asked, would you be willing to help us stand up this resilience program? And at the time, I'm like, um, I, I'm supposed to be, like, taking it easy and, you know. You're like, it hasn't even been six months, other- people. <laughs> Not only that, I feel like. The people that we've interviewed, you, me, we've all talked about this uh, on some levels. When you're going through this stuff, you don't feel resilient necessarily. Sometimes it's hard to identify how you are being resilient in the moment. Because you're still trying to survive. Yeah, so I can't imagine somebody coming to you and say, are you ready to (laughs) teach a class? (laughs) Teach this class and, and help us prop up this new program. You're going, am I? Am I qualified? Am I ready? Am I... Do I feel resilient enough in this moment? I mean, it's a lot. It it is a lot. They sent me to the University of Pennsylvania. They have a positive psychology program there. That's who the Army was working with at the time to train trainers to train resilience, if that makes sense. And so I went there and I learned all the things, set up the program at Fort Bragg, and eventually was asked to go work on the program at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And oh that's where I spent the last couple of years of my Army career. And, like, honestly, I just, if it wasn't for that, I, I wouldn't be where I am today by no means. But it it started helping me to see and understand a few things. One, like, we can teach, coach, train others on resilient skills or things that they can implement into their lives to live a more resilient life. So, I mean, I didn't know that before. I didn't know that you can teach people those things. I I really thought like either you've got it or you don't, either you're going to make it through or you're going to crumble, but that's not necessarily the case. And something else I started really realizing very early on is that this probably isn't going to be the last hard thing I navigate in my life. Don't you hate that realization? Unfortunately, you're right. (laughs) We don't just get one defining opportunity to grow and then spend the rest of our lives riding off into the sunset. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, unfortunately, that was pretty clear pretty quick. But also, like, even though most people might not be able to relate to my particular story, which is definitely unique, 
we all have our struggles and whether they're big or small, it just doesn't matter. And so if I can help even just one person, that's what I want to do. I want to help people through or maybe before even the tough times that they're going to navigate so that, you know, they'll be okay. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, I love what you said, that resilience can be taught? Because I do think sometimes Mm -hmm. we think you either are or aren't. You're either superwoman or you're going to be a basket case and you don't really get to choose Mm -hmm. in the moment. And yet I love that you have learned and are, are helping other people learn that resilience can be taught. Can you talk a little bit about how you would define resilience? And maybe if you have a couple mm-hmm. tips and tricks like, hey, if you want to develop this in your life, try this, do that, consider the other. So I remember when I was teaching resilience in the Army, we would say it's like bouncing back. And I'm not really a huge fan of that definition to a certain extent. The bounce, it might not be right away back to where you were before. And we use a tennis ball like as a visual aid, like bouncing. But that tennis ball might not necessarily be super bright and yellow. Like it might have chunks out of it or it might have some some dents in it or scratches in it. But like a ball, the bounce happens maybe just a little bit that first time and then the second time it bounces maybe it comes a little higher maybe it doesn't come as high so it's just really like coming back from a situation or an event that kind of like knocks you down yeah yeah we on our show we like to talk about it being a muscle that we exercise but that if we don't exercise it it doesn't get stronger but when we do exercise it, it, we build that resiliency. We build that strength. And I like what you and said, so Jennifer. True. Sorry, training training people on resilience before they need that resilience. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes we're in the crisis and say, oh, my goodness, I'm not strong enough or I don't have the right tools or the wherewithal to handle this. Well, what if we got some coaching and some thinking and some perspective in maybe some of the calm parts of our lives rather than only yeah. in the middle of the storm. So Which is I, a great thing that we should be right. actually teaching yeah. our children in schools. Um, so tell us, what are some of the, the skills that you teach people in building resiliency? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. I mean, I like to share, like, in this type of forum, some pretty, like, quick and easy ones. One of them, most people know the value of practicing gratitude. But I think it's important to just remind others that it's a practice. And so it is super easy to wake up in the morning and go about your day and notice all of the things that either don't go right or just go absolutely wrong and kind of like think about those. Like those are the things you're thinking about at night. It's not super easy always to recognize there were probably just as many, if not more things that went pretty well throughout your day. And so just getting in the practice of identifying 
two to three good things that happened each day. And then taking it a step further, how can I cultivate more of this in my day-to-day life? Or what was it about that good thing that makes me feel really good? That practice over time will build your engine of optimism, which we know is a key component in a person's resilience. So it sounds kind of like, easy but it's not it's a practice it absolutely That's is one that I like it's a to great word to use it. for it yeah practice I love that okay yeah. so give yeah. us one more another one I think is a big one is focus on what you can control we all probably can relate to like getting sucked into that tunnel of worrying about thinking about letting a situation drain us that we have absolutely no control over. And so instead of allowing that to happen, maybe even if it's just a little tiny piece of the pie, if there's something that you do have control over, focus on that. I love that. I'm not very good at that, and I appreciate that reminder because I do sometimes feel like I have to I have to yeah. shove my face into that pie and inhale the whole thing all at once, and then I get overwhelmed, <laughs> and then I get overworked, and then I get paranoid, and then I, you know, I feel like I'm trying to face the next 50 years worth of problems in the very moment. When if I would just yeah. focus on, for one thing, one small piece, but also making sure I'm focusing on something I can actually do something about. Because yeah. I tend to try to focus on right. too much at once. And I'm focusing on stuff that I shouldn't focus on anyway. So thank you're not you. going to be able to take right. care of it no. anyhow. I'm writing this which down. Is a good it, reminder. Which is also another reminder. That kind of leads into staying in the present. Trying to mm. not focus so much of all of the things that are coming at you that you know are coming at you in the future. Or worrying about things that haven't happened yet. Yeah. As well that as. mindfulness. Yeah. As well as not, you know. Uh, harboring on those things of the past. Do you have one more good tip for us? Relationships matter. And so you don't need a hundred, you don't even need five, but if you have one relationship that, you know, you can really know that person is there for you, you can count on them and vice versa, like relationships matter so, so, so much and really make a difference, especially when times get tough. Absolutely. And I love that you said those relationships need to go both ways. I feel like um, sometimes we either look for someone who can always rescue us, or we think we have to always be the rescuer, when in reality, the strongest, most helpful relationships are ones where we help each other. So this has been so good for me. Jennifer, tell us your website. Where can we find you? Because I'm going to come sign up for everything you have to offer because I can tell um, even just from this brief You really can't because she's not in the same state and she looks like she teaches yoga too. Well, maybe there's video yoga. There's virtual yoga. I have practiced practiced yoga a very small number of times, but when I did, I did find it incredibly helpful and it's on my radar of things to try and um, be better about making time for. So I am going to connect with you for sure. For the record, all of my one-on-one coaching clients are virtual, so yeah, I want to mention that. My website is jenniferbalu.com. So you can find me there. All of my services, I do one-on-one and small group coaching, and I, I am a yoga teacher as well, and I do 
um, a pretty decent amount of public speaking. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well as LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find Jennifer Ballou, B-A-L-L-O-U. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your story and your heart. This beautiful movie that started in Vicenza, Italy, and this love story that had so many beautiful turns and then another tragic but still beautiful turn. And I appreciate that you continue the story. That wasn't the end of the story. Thank and you, it's lady, still so much. And yeah. it's still a beautiful one. So thank you. And to our listeners, thank you. Join me in finding Jennifer. We are going to connect and be stronger because of it. Thank you for listening each and every week. And as you listen, if you have a story that you're willing to share with us, we hope you'll reach out to us and give us a chance to share that with our listeners. Everyone's been through hard things, different hard things. We've all learned how to have resilience, how to exercise that muscle, how to practice what we're learning. We'd love to have you share your story with us. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.